Hi listener, this is From Ideology to Unity, a spiritual journey where we let go of ego and ideological doctrine in favour of meaning, purpose and unity as a whole. Right, so I think this is the last reading I'm doing on the Red Book of Jung, or actually the Red Book of Jung, of C.G. Jung, A Journey into Unknown Depths by Walter Burchett. I'm kind of wondering, is there actually a book that's the Red Book that you can actually read? that I missed, because I don't know if there is. But this is still pretty interesting read, so anyway, anyway. This is chapter 10, final conclusions. So, the red book is like the god Janus, as it has two sides. One that looks to the past is traditional and medievalist, and the other that contemplates future developments in psychological theory and practice. Seven years after the publication of Liber Novus, we are now able to evaluate its influence on Jungian psychology and contemporary psychology in general. The book is a very unique original psychological reference. After its publication in 2009, numerous events across the world have been held in order to research, disseminate and debate the various aspects of Liber Novus and its significance for Jungian psychology. At the same time, as we dive into the book and discuss its various aspects, it is fascinating to see Jung's concepts as they are being formed, their origin in intense, intense subjective experiences, and their gradual condensation into the theoretical body of Jung's work. This book discusses the immediate meaning of Liber Novus, see chapter one, a creative and emotionally intense journey that Jung took in order to face his midlife crisis. Although this midlife crisis was a very important factor in the production of the book, Liber Novus should be considered to be a part of Jung's existential process in general. Liber Novus represents a continent of varied impressions from the personal life of its author that at the time had still not been completely understood by his conscious. It contains symbolic representations of various philosophical, religious, and existential questions that, that had tormented Jung ever since his childhood. The large number and variety of symbols that emerged at this time were gradually and continuously integrated through creative processes along the course of his life. The process of assimilating these intense experiences lends Liber Nobis a true significance in the genesis of the author's work. It clearly identifies his first conceptualizations on the individuation process and the various inner characters that are involved in this. The stages of the process, the encounters with the shadow, the anima, and the symbolic representations of the self are clearly described. The identification of these concepts and the description of the process in general are achieved through personification. The Red Book and a Civilization in Transition. The Red Book was written at the time when the West was undergoing a radical cultural crisis. I would add it still is. I mean, and this is everything to do with the ongoing shift of the age of Aquarius and the awakening of humanity in general to fourth density. That's my opinion, and let's carry on. Changes in Western civilization began in the 18th century with the start of the Industrial Revolution. The book was written as the First World War was breaking out and alongside the deep cultural transformations that it caused. 
These affected a wide range of human activities across the arts, the sciences, and human culture in general. A paradigm shift took place that had deep cultural impact. At the start of the 20th century, new radical ideas were being introduced by Albert Einstein, just as the theory of relativity in 1906, the same year which Jung published The Psychology of Dementia, Dementia Precox. Freud completed his three essays on the theory of sexuality, and Picasso painted his, the first Cubist painting, Les Demoiselles d'Avignon, which I'm sorry if you're French. I, <laughs> I'm sorry. I never did one in French class anyway. Uh, anyway, uh, so I would, I would also mention that I don't think Einstein's theories were actually the most revolutionary at the time. I mean, even if you go to um, Planck, was it 1900, Planck wrote his theory. Uh, and then there's a... Uh, Uh, Niels Bohr, Niels Salisbury, um, and, and certain others, especially quantum physicists, you know, they were very radical. Anyway, um, the point is still, nevertheless, pretty cemented that they're making here. Um, yeah, so there were big changes in the collective unconscious going on at the time, maybe even the collective conscious, if that's the thing. And yeah, um, Lots of big changes, and also I would I would suggest lots of I would say war is a complicated thing, right? It, it's obviously terrible, and loads of people die, but sometimes it can be a clearing. Maybe the world wars are actually a way of, in some respects, a way of people clearing out all that negativity from so many generations and maybe there's an aspect in in, in a cosmic scale in which it if it's some sort of divine plan um now that doesn't mean that the cabal didn't orchestrate anything in these things and i do think they are and it's funny though because even even the cabal were part of this grand divine plan. Like the plan made by source, but in another sense, by each soul of on earth in, inter, in complex interaction on, on a level that we're not entirely conscious of yet. Think of it like these white threads between people, right? Interwoven and weaving the future, but also prepared in the after in the afterlife, in between lives, whatever you call it. Spirit realm or whatever, right? So Yeah, so I wonder if on on the ego level, perhaps the level that the cabal are actually aware of themselves, perhaps they're doing it in dark conspiracies, but perhaps on a level that they're not in one when in life aware of, usually, perhaps 
I don't know. It depends on how much awareness they really have. But perhaps there's a level on which there's a divine plan to what they're doing that's beyond what they can even comprehend. And perhaps the conspiracies are real and part of a problem in a set loose sense, but maybe in the more zoomed out, bigger part of the picture, it's all how we awaken as a whole. Now, I'm not entirely, I can't entirely claim credit for this idea. I mean, no lad has talked about it, uh, some other people, but this idea that, yeah, like um, everything that's happening is like, just as it needs to be for an entire species on earth to awaken, right? I mean, there's this negative energy matrix, 3D matrix, what do we call it? Like or a ne negative energy grid or corrupted energy grid that's lowering all our frequencies. But the thing is like at a certain point when the frequency, when we meet a certain threshold, like everyone just awaken anyways. It, it's, it's gonna take a number of years. I don't know how long exactly. Anyway, you might be wondering when I'm gonna continue <laughs> Uh, about the Red Book. So, Picasso's style of painting is related to the cultural revolution that took place during the first decade of the last century, as Cubism employed multiple perspectives. Paintings from the Middle Ages were drawn on a single plane, and the first painter to break away from this was the Renaissance artist Leonardo da Vinci, using his suffamato technique. Cubism offers multiple possibilities of visualization. This multiplicity is similar to the symbolic version and perspective of the unconscious that the new discipline of psychoanalysis introduced by Freud and Jung provided. It is also worth remembering that the models that Picasso used were prostitutes from the city of Avignon, prohibited as a result of the repressed sexuality that Freud studied. Hmm. It is worth remembering that Liber Nobis came about during a moment of crisis when all the cultural references of the time were undergoing a profound transformation. This happened at the beginning of the 20th century, when the significant cultural changes in the sciences and arts were taking place. At the same time, various movements were reacting to the unilateralism of Europe's scientific materialism. The Dadaism movement, founded in Zurich in 1916, represented a vigorous protest against the excesses of modern rationality. And in fact, it reminds me, um, I think it was Dostoevsky. I haven't actually read the book, but there was something about if people, if we had a completely rational society, people would Rebellion get it anyway, just so that they can actually uncertainty and a sense of agency in their lives. Maybe it's related to the diadist movement in some way. I don't know. Symbolically, that is. And you've got to keep in mind that this crisis never really ended. It just continued and got more accentuated. And so the crisis has been talked about. It's, it's the same one we're in. Yeah, I would say um, this it's it's how we it's linked to the awakening process linked to the new age and it's also probably linked because I've been reading more of the um, 
Wait, what was it? <laughs> I've been reading more of a certain book by what David Wilcock, uh, The Synchronicity Key, and he's been talking about these events in history, which line up in our recent history, especially in America, which line up with Roman history, right? And how those certain countries are linked with some of the same people reincarnating that were in another place. Like for example, Cuba and Macedonia, I think was one example given. And these are, there's this grand dance, it's just like this grand dance or this grand story. And it's kind of very repeated, but in a different way. Um, it's funny how everything's like a play, isn't it? Man, Shakespeare was so right. Source just loves to play stor stories. Like we love to play, do stories. We, You've seen us, you've been a child, right? You, you remember the games and the stories and that's what souls do. Kids are much closer to the, our true nature than we are. We've got this type of conditioned state, right? But we're children of God in a sense. We're children of source. We're, no, there's this idea in them A Course in Miracles, it talks about, it frames all that is as the father and each soul in the 3D universe, let's say, in the physical universe as like sons of the father. And Christ is like an older brother who's helping us out. And we can't necessarily directly reach or that is connect with that directly necessarily, but through Christ and the Christ consciousness, that is the Christ consciousness being what's being referred to, we can get that. And what is this Christ consciousness? This Christ consciousness, in a sense, is kind of it's kind of presence. So, in a loose sense, we connect through presence to all that is through play through our grand divine plays that we do uh, be on a scale beyond the individual lives like with countries and everything like so it's like oh man it's like It's a little bit like paradox games, but mass multiplayer, right? You know, like Paradox Interactive, like CK2 or something. But it's so much more intricate than that because it's like, it's so much more of an advanced stimulation than that. Anyway. A range of other religious and philosophical movements opposing modernity appeared. One group of intellectuals and artists inaugurated a place where people could worship the cult of nature they called Monte Verita, the mountain of truth, close to a small city of Ascona on the Lake Magua on the Swiss-Italian border. 
That sounds pretty good. Is that still a thing? Anyone know anything about that? They can comment if you watch this on YouTube, that is. Yeah, because um, Monte Verita, interesting. Some of the participants were Herman Hess, the psychiatrist Otto Gross, the dance researcher Laban, and the German writer awarded the Nobel Prize in 1912, Ger Gerhard Hauptmann. One of Hauptmann's best books talks about the spirit of Monteverita. His novel, The Heretic of Sawana, became famous across the whole of Europe in 1918. Hauptmann narrates the story of a young father, Francisco, who is transferred to the village of Sawana and falls in love with his with the beautiful Agatha, who is the product of an incestuous relationship. It is an erotic story providing a harsh criticism of empty Christianity that proposes to a, that return, proposes to return to a pagan religion based on naturalism. The young Agatha is described at the end of the book as a goddess of nature with the beauty and power of a great mother, Mother Earth perhaps. Gaia is lovely anyway. At this point, it is clear that the book is proposing a redemption and return to pre-Christian values. Values, Blavatsky's ideas on theosophy, vegetarianism, and Eastern religion also had an important role for the movement of Monte Burita. All of these issues emerged as a form of compensation against materialistic values of the Industrial Revolution that had swept over Europe. You know. When it comes to the radical left, that, that they they tend to be quite well. There's this idea of the religion being the opiate of the masses. I'm not going to conflate all the radical left as Marxists, but what I will say is that there's this idea that it's the material conditions that matter, and the in, in material inequity in the conditions that are the problem. And thus that focusing on whether they're anarchists or whether they're Marxist or what have you, it's like they they very much find, I, I might be generalizing, this is just an impression that I have, that, that they, um, they have a distaste at the very least, if not an outright opposition to any form of spirituality, right? Because they would just associate it with the open masses and like but also this idea that you're not actually focusing on the problem and fixing the inequities and the oppression if you're just distracted with mysticism but the thing is it's not a distraction and you don't get happiness through like material possessions like the people who are like super rich stock investors or whatever right stock traders and they, they get this really good car, really good Rolex, they buy all the biggest expensive stuff. Just, are they happy? No, obviously not. They're, they're, they're just chasing this ever more material possessions as a way to fill a hole inside because they're not actually present, you know? And the thing with the others, another end of this whole materialism paradigm, which is those who 
they feel that because they don't have certain as much, right, that they are unhappy because they don't have the material wealth that the rich people have. And if only things more equally balanced, then everyone would be happy because everyone would have what they materially need, right? The thing is material need isn't the basis of happiness because the ego is never satisfied, right? Not unless you can actually, I mean, what I'm dealing with at the moment is the spiritual ego, right? I'm still grappling with doing the inner work and that sort of thing. So it, it's difficult. And I, I don't blame or like disparage anyone who, these people I'm talking about or these tendencies I'm talking about, because like, man, even people who do get it to the extent that I do or whatever, you know, it's still not easy and it takes time and effort well, effort, maybe effort is the problem, but it, it takes time anyway to really do that inner work and awaken. And maybe there are shortcuts for sure, but yeah, anyway, the thing is all this, the solution is in the higher meaning in spirituality rather than the simple literal survival or social survival that the eco pursue, ego, eco, whatever, the ego pursues. Because um, it's all about just raising or at least maintaining your social, your position in the social hierarchy, because that actually affects your quality of life in many ways. The ego knows this, it's designed of that. But the thing is, there's more to life than that. And happiness isn't achieved through the ego, it's achieved through ego death, right? And ego death isn't just, just don't have an ego. Ego death is kind of more like, it's like a process that repeats until it's more like a, think of it like an inner alchemy and you're getting all this egoic bullshit and sort of filtering yourself, right? And you filter it through and it's like kind of purified, right? Um, and you get that and then you apply catalyst to it and there's a reaction and more negativity within on shit comes out and there's more stuff in the ego is discovered to be purified some more through more <clears throat> purification filtering and it's like think of it like actual chemistry or like an actual alchemist in a lab but think of it like that is being done with your inner energies and negativity and various things like that and it's through this inner work that this inner alchemy is done and that is how and this whole process might be considered a sort of ego death so instead of like ego death being like just eat your ego, like, like that's a thing, right? Um, and that's why so many, some people are like opposed to the idea of um, ego death because like this idea is put forward of ego death being that just kill your ego and be pure awareness all the time with no, but what is your ego? It's your like 
nervous system and your literal physical body like and your actual brain like actually existing like if the physical side of it the, we're incarnated that's a fact if you truly want ego death like you'd only really be able to get that like true ego death in that sense death is the actual way to get there as in like an end of incarnation <laughs> so yeah but there's a reason why we're here and it's to learn and grow and yeah anyway so it's that spiritual a higher purpose serving a higher purpose serving others help helping in some sense and th that sort of communion with others as you're serving others that whole thing it's that's what and living in a playful present way the having flow these are where joy in life are from right that's where joy in life is found it and fundamentally you can not actually have that many material possessions at all you've been technically poor and have a lovely life you can love your life or you could you could be like even if you're stacking shelves like you might love what you're doing like really you just enjoy your day like and I, i'm not at a point where that's something i would be able to enjoy yet i don't think stacking shelves or something but even if there is a level of presence where that's possible and whereas you know if someone doesn't have presence it doesn't matter whether they're rich poor or anything in between they will be unhappy so I guess part of the awakening requires that awareness to come back because we've we've been conditioned to to either be have organized religion which is about control and shame or not have organized religion at all but but the and that the spirituality is just like it's either treated as bunk or as evil satanism right and and i'm sure that is a reason for that because those who don't want us to awaken well those who control or at least influence what people think for a large, large degree i mean that's exactly what they want which is why they've acted that's why people have been conditioned in that way which funny enough makes the anti-establishment radical left to the extent that they believe in this materialist paradigm conditioned and uh propagandized to the extent that they're opposed to spirituality which is actually where you get liberation, true liberation from. Uh, liberation from ego desires, liberation from, I mean, oppression and control is ultimately derived from ego anyway, right? And, and that includes oppression and control that you do to yourself in a sense, uh, for your ego. So not that liberty in the more materialist sense of like, or the sense that libertarians believe in it or whatever, isn't a thing, but like, there's a higher liberty too. Um, hmm. I don't entirely know why I went into that, but it feels right. Okay. 
So, these movements oscillating between the rational and the irrational, science and art, and science and religion are cultural flows that continue to this day and could well go on forever, like some form of psychological necessity within the cultural unconscious. Sanford Drob suggests that the Red Book also has a compensatory function in relation to current psychological techniques biased towards the rational approach, 2012. According to Drob, the influence of neuroscience and behavioral techniques in present-day psychotherapy is extremely one-sided. The one Red Book proposes an approach in which imagination and, and the irrational can also be included. And I would add that, that part of their problem is that the irrational, and I don't mean that in a derogatory sense at all, the irrational has been has been denigrated in a sense. The irrational is the subjective, the actual, is actually the real tangible experience that everyone have, right? And this, who would I, who actually says it? Um, something that someone called uh, Thoughts and Thinking, a point that they made in a recent video, um, was that if truth-seeking I'm going to see if I can call it correctly, but it's the idea that if pursuing truth is this, if that's where the the if there's something, it's in a sense that the subjective experience and the pursuit of speaking your truth, your subjective truth is it's just as much something special as doing um pursuing truth objective truth but the difference is that objective truth kind of denies your subjective truth Um, in that it ends up being ideology, which you have to align with and almost lie to yourself about. Anything that doesn't fit it, you ignore. And yeah, but there is something about there's this higher truth and we can pursue it and discover it. And there's something transcendental about just speaking, being willing to be genuine and authentic about what your subjective truth is and just speak it. And honestly, that's not how he put it. If you want to see his point, I mean, uh, you can do that. Um, I think it was one of his, man, I, I don't, just I look it up. <laughs> so um, I'm, I'm sorry I couldn't explain it better, but it came to mind it anyway, as relevant. So, oh yeah, and about the um, the thing I was talking about with the left is that this, the irrational, it's not just on the left or anyway, but generally in society, this, the irrational has been denigrated, has been shoved aside, but the, rash, the irrational is the life 
blood of our consciousness, isn't it? Like of our actual experience, not like, like not this, we must be perfectly logical and rational at all times. We must follow what the science experts say, like, or whatever, like that's lifeless. It's cold, it's machine-like. And it's not, it saps enjoyment from life. And there's a recognition. Now, if you think of, consider, um, who's that Morris? There's this um, artisan in the 19th century called Morris who produced um, a lot of beautiful art. And the idea was that beautiful art done by the people rather than heartless corporations essentially doing it. And there was, there's something in Morris which reminds me of a sort of a spiritualist vibe from a working class perspective. And that that is something that is been lost perhaps. That spirit of but it can be regained, it's not entirely gone. Like the idea of the people eating locally and stuff, that, that is still alive. And it's still on the left to some extent, that hippie thing, like the 60s, like you got it in the 60s. Unfortunately, it became more about, actually no, I'm not gonna judge the 60s anyway. But yeah, so the point is that there's something about irrational that's valuable and instead of pushing it aside and forcing it into the unconscious if we can accept the irrational as there's a truth to it anyway that we don't we can be imaginative we can be a creative and it's not bullshit it's not bunk it's valuable and we can value it in other people too we can value it in each other as a society we are allowed to do that and even those who are, it's got a point where even in those who are outright against against the status quo, such as anarcho-communists, for example, very regularly, even they seem to fall for the, I've been conditioned by this idea that of throwing the irrational out the window. And I don't think we should do that. I, I don't think it's, I, I think that it's I, I don't think it's healthy either. And I don't think Jung would think that either. So I think Jung would agree with me. So anyway, I believe that the various, this is me reading this. I believe that the various existing ways of approaching the psyche do not invalidate the Jungian model involving the archetypes and the cultivation of images. These alternative models of approach can coexist with the current paradigm. Edgar Morin, 1999, proposes the name of paradigm of complexity to a new emerging paradigm. As he comments, the word, word complexus means to weave together. So he explains his choice of the word complexity as follows. I, I will add that that word complexus is a good word to describe the weaving together of 
divine or source threads on an energetic, ethereal, perhaps spiritual level, whether it through the spirit plane of reality or in, in our reality that we can't see it in the 3D, but that's in the 4D or the 5D or beyond. There are these white weaves interacting in a complex way or complexus way, like, um, and it's still the karmic strings and like the way in which people um, comic. I mean, it's kind of it's soul contracts. It's related to soul contracts and people um, healing, dealing, you know, healing from their karmic stuff and past lives and stuff like this. And it's this grand dance and plan, a divine plan among all the souls. And yeah, complexus, complexity, weave to weave together. I, I'm just seeing things line up. It, it seems to fit to me. All right. He explains his choice of the word complexity as follows. Knowledge under the authority of the brain separates and reduces. We reduce man to an animal, to the psychochemical. No, 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 I miss, I'll start again. We reduce man to an animal, to the physical chemical. The key issue is that thought unites. And for this reason, the word complexity is so important in my opinion, as complexus means that which is woven together given character to the tapestry. And isn't that what life really is? A grand tapestry. Because like we, we decided on soul contracts, soul contracts before we, we lived our lives. We decided on how, who would we would meet. Well, not everything with free will, but we decided on a lot of things beforehand. And it's all a grand plan, a grand dance, a grand complex tapestry, a work of art that humanity has been doing for a long time, right? And we're now we're at a point where we're weaving it all together into one united whole. And on an energetic level, from what I hear, that's already happened. It's just that people need to wake up to match that. And that takes time. But um, yeah, I, as I've been talking about in other readings I've been doing, like for example, the one about Schopenhauer or the one about, um, quantum physics that what's been happening is we have been reduced to merely an animal or to merely to merely physical to merely chemical the the actual conscious part of us the part of us that's mental the part of us that's beyond the physical has been sidelined as if we're all just like robots biological flesh-based robots but we're not there's so much more to us than that and i just love that how that symbolism of the tapestry came up as i was reading this it just seemed to be a good timing recent effects recent efforts to research and map the brain over the next 10 years, known as the Human Connectome Project, a name that makes reference to the simpler Human Genome Project, project does not fully invalidate the approach using the symbolic and the imagination. Alongside the development of biological approaches, laboratory research has demonstrated the efficiency and 
of the efficiency of meditation and eating natural foods. In, and eating natural foods in the prevention of a range of psychological and physical problems. For example, the neurophysics psychiatrist, Servant Scriber, tried to develop a method for treating cancer based on natural medicines, meditation, and physical waste exercise associated with the conventional biomedical treatments, 2007. This demonstrates the possibility of creatively integrating these different approaches. I don't know if you've heard of it, but there was a woman in the UK a number of years ago. I don't know how long ago it was, but maybe 10 years ago or something. And she had, she had cancer. She had it pretty bad too. But so what she decided to do, she'd keep them running for charity as long as she could. So that she did. And she kept on running beyond the amount of time that was, she was expected to live. Several times more than like, so for years, she was supposed to be dead, and it, according to the doctor's predictions, and defying any expectation of what was possible, she she kept on going and she kept on running, and it just shows that you got a higher purpose than you when you're exercising and you're, and when certain conditions align, like we can surpass the expectations of the medical community in the sense that it's not that it's true that in many ways we are helped by modern medicine but in many ways our lack of harmony with nature is holding our health and longevity back more than and that modernity, that is linked to modernity in certain sense. That aspect of modernity holds us lifetimes, lifespans back more than, well, that lack of harmony, more than the actual technology benefits us. I mean, like putting chemicals into us, it's not, it's not natural and harmonic. We don't know the full consequences of that. Whereas there was a time back in Atlantean times, like, when we were in harmony more with nature and we love live way longer. From what I hear, the human body is naturally, is naturally able to live a thousand years. I might sound ridiculous to people coming from a, a paradigm that's more mainstream, but yeah, we can live a lot longer. And it's the fall from grace that led to us loving shorter longevity and it's, it's a disharmony from lower frequency. Anyway. <sighs> the global dynamism of this crisis of transformation is naturally intensified by the speed of communications through the internet and through intensive cultural exchanges between people who are geographically very far from one another. Part of this movement of change includes an exacerbated scientism dominating some areas of knowledge. The progress of neuroscience has brought with it new perspectives for the study of pers the personality. Despite the huge achievements in this field, however, relationships between the mind and the body brain are still to be explored. Although I would add that the text, Quantum Theory and Free Will by Henry P. Stapp 
how mental intentions from state body actions does bridge that gap to a large degree, to an actual amazing degree. Um, honestly, really good, revisable, really great book. To some extent uh, as well, what is it? Decoding through open house metaphysics also deals with that a little bit, this sort of stuff. And together, they make a pretty solid case that actually kind of fills in that gap, the gap that was just addressed here as the relationships between the mind and body brain are still to be explored. That, right. What exactly, what is the exact relationship between the brain, a structure, and the mind, a process. How do neuron structures, synapses, and chemical reactions link with thoughts, philosophical ideas, the imagination, and feelings such as altruism and solidarity? Satisfactory answers have still not been found for those quest these questions. Similarly, the unconscious and the psyche as a whole cannot be grasped using purely experimental methods or laboratory experiences. This is despite the huge emphasis on the biological model in the United States and Europe in recent years. Just as Liebenobis was written at a time of great cultural change, I consider it highly significant that it has made available to the public so many years later during another period of transition. It was in the symbolic year of 2000 that the Society of Heirs to the Work of Jung authorized the publication of the Red Book. Similarly to the time that the book was written, this period was also characterized by an intensive cultural crisis. And I will also add that this book was published, the book we're talking about here, in 2009, three years before 2012. Um, yeah. And, wait a sec. No, 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 I'm, I'm wrong. This is originally published in 2014. No, first published, originally published in Brazil, but first published in 2017. So, no, I'm wrong. This is published, the Red Book originally was published in 2009, but this book itself was published in 2017, well into the awakening period of 2012 to 2021 and onwards. Um, Interestingly, when was that raw material book, uh, Living the North One, published? I'm just curious about the date. 2009! The same date as the Red Book, if I'm correct. That's pretty interesting, isn't it? I don't know. I'm not, I'm not saying there's any special significance there, but... Yeah. Well, like, right. Okay. The year 2000, the year 2000, <clears throat> sorry, okay. The year 2000 represented an age full of symbolism and fantasies relating to the turn of the century. Millennium, sorry, related to the turn of the millennium. Millennianism, millennianism, the archetypal idea that the destiny of humanity or of groups of humanity is intimately linked to the passing of time and the changing of ages, has existed since ancient times. Visionaries, prophets, and shamans from all periods of human history spoke of millennial events that would bring salvation or condemnation and damnation. 
Jung himself was interested in the millennialist Cistercian monk, Joachim de Fiora, who lived in Italy during the 17th century. Jung, 1951, page 82. Fiora preached the millennialist doctrine, according to which the millennium before Christ belonged to the Father, the millennium of Mosaic law and obedience through fear. The first millennium AD belonged to The first millennium AD belonged to the sun, an era based on faith and love, and the second millennium AD would belong to the Holy Spirit. The influence of the Holy Spirit would influence the predominant of, predominance of the monastic orders, meditation and inner life, marked by an introspective attitude such as opposed, as opposed to a strong traditional institutional influence. And so that seems to resonate with me with the idea of Age of Aries, then Age of Pisces, which I'm pronouncing wrong, but whatever. And then wait, no, it's talking about the first half of the Age of Pisces and then the second half. Mm, it doesn't align exactly, but anyway. Once again, from the year 2000, a range of millennial fantasies erupted within the collective imagination, some of which were very strange, including predictions from a certain Mayan calendar and the technological theories known as the millennium bug. According to the latter, none of the computers based on the digital system would be able to operate as a result of the three zeros in the new date. This fear that technology would fail seemed like a child's play compared to the political and social events that unfolded from the year 2000 onwards. So when it comes to this, these changes relating to the awakening, the age of Aquarius, we can clearly say, oh, it's 2012, it's 2021, but it starts, it's sort of gradually ramped up, right? In a series of, and a series of steps, it really ramped up. Like 2000 ramped up, 2012 ramped up, 2021 ramped up more and it's going to keep ramping up until it's done. Um, but yeah, it's... Um, and as we know, things have certainly ramped up. Especially even since 2017, you know? The new millennium was seen with the attack on the Twin Towers in New York in September 2001, September 11, 2001, signaling the start of a new area of transformation for civilization as we know it. Um, I would add here that in the synchronicity key, the, um, the links between Rome and America that David Walcott mentions, are quite significant. So they do relate. The year, the year 2002 was a year of the god Janus, the ancient Roman god of gateways, who had two faces, two towers, two faces. It was also what the numerologists call a palindromic year, for which the start and end are a mirror image of each other. Yeah, 2002, not 2001. Hmm, Janus. Oh, I'll keep reading, I guess. And symmetrical opposites confront one another. 
This was a time of radical confrontation between opposites, the new, the renewable, the disposable, and the culture of information technology that is updated almost on a monthly basis versus the traditional and medieval cultures of the Middle East, upholding permanent and upchanging lit values, unchanging lit values. It is, is it possible for these two opposites to come together? I would say so. At this time of crisis and of millennialist expectations, Liber Novus was finally published from, by the Philemon Foundation in 2009. Well, there we go then, 2009. The Red Book is also a Janus book. It has two faces, very much in keeping with the period of transition in which it was published. One face looks to the past and is traditional. Even the book's appearances linked with the past, seemingly written on medieval papyrus with Gothic letters and tempera adornments and illustrations. The book discusses the beginnings of Christianity in the desert when Jung talks to Ammonius the Anchorite, who was alive during the first centuries of the age of Christ. Figures from the Old Testament, ancient Greece, and other societies from antiquity are also present. The encounter with, with Isdabar speaks of the need to establish a link with ancient cultures and the mythological thinking that has been abandoned by modernity and its goddess of reason. The Red Book has another face, however, which is a face that looks ahead to the future, suggesting new ways forward and approaches for psychological theory and psychotherapy. I would summarize the new approaches contained within the Red Book into the following four categories. Keep in mind, there were four, um, the Quaternary had four stages um, that repeated in a cycle, right? Uh, the Lapis Quaternio, that was it. And that was illustration six, seven, and nine. And just reference, there we go. Um, these ones. Yeah. Um, and even, and obviously that is linked to four, Quaternio, what that it means four. Um, and of course, um, He said, I would summarize the new approaches contained within the Red Book into the following four categories. But the personification of emotions, the concept of the self and the individuation process, the concept of the objective psyche, and finally the practical results of these new perspectives, which provide a new form of Jungian psychotherapy redesigned as the result of the author's personal experiences. A process, I would add, that I think is alchemical in nature, in a sense, just as inner work and shadow work tends to be. Personifying emotions. Faced with, I wonder if this has a sort of hero's journey, which these four stages can make up, right? The inner work, the shadow work, the, it's an inner work that Jung did, um, you know, that cycle uh, that I mentioned before of these four quaternaries in a cycle and the these um these four stages the first of which is personifying emotion faced with personal images that appear in great great intensity it seems clear that giving a shape to these unidentifiable emotions was a more fundamental factor in their gradual integration by Jung. I would I link this to the idea in the law of one and 
your age mysticism or the idea of know yourself if you you can it's all very well to want know accepting yourself and loving yourself and, and all this stuff but if you don't even know yourself how do you know what to accept in the first place right and that's saying personify emotions this seem linked to the know yourself part that's required for love self-love right giving shape to these unidentifiable emotions was a fundamental factor in their gradual integration by you we can see that the more abstract emotions and tendencies are worked through little by little as the book progresses becoming more defined through the process of personification see chapter three the spirit of the depths the factor that led jung to his inner experience first manifests as a voice a calling and an inclination only at the end of Libra Primus is this personified as the prophet Elijah. And later on in the second part of Libra Secundus and in Scrutinies as Philemon, as Philemon. These successes, successive personifications allow a gradual integration of this content. The whole of Libra Novus has a double structure. The first involving direct emotional experiences associated with certain images and the second involving a more rational elaboration. Here, experience becomes theory and theory becomes method. Using his fundamental experiences, Jung organizes a new psychological theory based on personified images and the individuation process. So, we see how it benefited him. The concept of the self and the individuation process. Using the experiences he describes in Lieber Novus, Jung coherently organized in his theory the intuition of the existence of the second center of psychic life other than the ego, the self. This intuition was called to his life and had appeared at various moments since he was a child when he sat on a rock close to his house and asked himself, is it me sitting on the stone thinking about it? Or am I being thought by the stone? 1963, page 33. He also had fantasies when he was young that the same that at the same time as being a young normal boy, a young boy, he was also an old man that dressed in clothes in the 18th century, page 55. Lieber Novus helped Jung to organize this concept theoretically. Individuation was to be a process used to seek a new form of psychological organization based on a new center within the personality, the self. Through these intuitions and personal experiences, Jung coherently establishes a theoretical identity related to his thinking. The notion of the self as a center and at the same time the totality of the consciousness and the unconscious psyche differentiates it from traditional psychoanalysts analysis, psychoanalysis. Soon after this, his separation from Freud, at a time that he started to write the Liber Novus, Jung emphasized that his concept of the unconscious was different from Freud's, as he saw it as just a deposit of for repressed material. Yeah, that's what Freud saw as, just a deposit of repressed material. Hmm. Well, I'm sure you're aware of the idea of the self in Jungian terms being very much relatable to the observer, the soul, 
which we really are, not the ego. So, the unconscious was an epiphenomenon, something derived from the conscious and not an entity in itself. The Jungian notion presumes, well, you know, it might actually be a more emergent phenomenon from, well, if I remember from the Course in Miracles, um, Christ says that It um, actually seems to agree with more with Freud on some level. Not that it means that Jungian psychology is wrong, but it's the idea that that there's the unconscious as naturally, the natural part of the unconscious being um, spiritual intuitive aspect of conscious of the subconscious, sort of being intuitive, you know, that sort of thing. Uh, a kind of divine aspect of ourselves, right? I would say that links to the self. The other part of the unconscious being all the gut junk or gunk or whatever that's not dealt with, right? Um, a way it's been described by um, the Lori Lad channeled, was it Lori Lad or someone else? I can't remember. Someone was channeling um, Mary Madeline and the, just the other day. And they were saying that Mary Madeline was describing it as like mud in the insides of us, right? because we're not, every time we don't deal with an emotion that might, could go through us in a healthy way and out, is if we just leave it, gunks us up, right? It manifests as a different like physical ailments or like mental issues or whatever, right? Because it's repressed, it's not dealt with, it mucks us up in a sense, right? And that aspect is only there because of a fallen condition in a sense because we're not present because we've got this bullshit built up through lies we tell ourselves due to trauma and pain and all that stuff that is called something called the ego basically uh it's like a the ego is like a it's based on a whole set of programs that we've created um that actually get in the way of divine connection. And um, that's what I recall from the Course of Miracles, which I really could do more readings from perhaps. It's just um, it's quite a big book, especially the version of it I have. Yeah, and there's a lot of stuff I could do readings on, to be honest. Uh, well, um, that's a difference from Jungian, from Jungian psychology, which treats the, the collective unconscious. No, it, it deals with the, um, there is something like a collective unconscious and collective conscious. I, I would say that's probably part of it too. But I, I, I do think it delves into different aspects of the subconscious, but it's not irrelevant. And the Jungian psychology, I feel, it's very useful for helping us individuate and ultimately integrate the shadow and heal and deal with all that negative stuff. But it's not the full picture and there are, it doesn't, it's not a path to ego death per se. It just helps. Um, there are things that, 
it's presence that's really the solution, right? Um, and the answer in the, is the Course of Miracles, or um, I mean, I feel like Aaron Abke's course is quite good, but it, um, you need to be ready for it. Anyway, just being present, that presence is the solution. The more present you are, the more it helps. And people, everyone have their own journey in beginning to presence, more awakening and so forth. So, um, the Jungian notion presumes that the unconscious is a create is is a creative a priori full of archetypal images. I would say I would say it is. I would say it is. However, the psychoanalyst and analysis that Jung criticized belonged to Freud's first topic, within with the psyche divided into the conscious, pre-conscious, where the subliminal processes are located, and the unconscious. After the ego and the id was published in 1923, Freud began his second topic, which involved his structure of the id, the ego, and the superego. According to this view, the id, as an unconscious structure, comes before the conscious. Therefore, Freud's concept of the structure of the mind is similar to the Jungian model, in which the unconscious is a primary phenomenon. For Freud, however, the id was always a bundle of drives without direction. With the notion of the self that originated from his experiences in Liber Novus, Jung introduced the notion of the unconscious having a different order to the ego. Well, I wonder, perhaps there's one aspect of the unconscious which is directly linked, which is directly linked to the ego and one that's directly linked to the self and that the intuitive playfulness of flow and intuition is the parts linked to the self, the observer, right? Then there's a part that's linked to the ego and it's kind of like a, a subconscious part of the ego, I would say. And that would be um, what Jung talks about as the shadow. And then there's the collective shadow. Is that the collective unconscious? Perhaps. Uh, archetypes play out through that, um, I would say too. Um, that's why I'm making sense of the combination of Course and Miracles, uh, Jung and Freud. I, I don't know if I'm getting it right at all, but whatever. Uh, anyway, so. With the notion of the self originated from his experiences in Liber Novus, Jung introduces the idea of the unconscious having a different order to the ego with the function of a perspective organization in the future, making this a teleological function. Noticing a type of organization in his fantasies, dreams, and paintings that was different to that of the conscious intention of the ego, he conceived the self as an organizing center of the psyche as a whole. At the same time, Jung conceptualized the self as the totality of conscious and unconscious psychological processes. Analyzing his series of his own and independent and his patient's dreams, Jung could observe this process of the self in action, moving towards individuation. Liber Novus provided Jung with a basis from which he could solidify his theory of the personality, grounded in the finalistic processes organized by the self. During these processes, psychic energy is personified by in a constant dialectic with conscious processes. As for the constant dialectic, what is a dialectic if not an integration of opposites? 
synthesis, antithesis, and you get an integration of those. No, this thesis, antithesis, synthesis, and then it splits up again. Thesis, antithesis, antithesis, synthesis. And this is kind of an alchemical process too. And if you're watching, of course, I'll show you, actually, no, I won't show you. You know what the, um, the those, um, the lapis quaternio is and the other diagrams linked to it. Uh, these, that seems linked to it to me. In fact, it seems to involve two pairs of opposites each, which is interesting. And they all integrate together and, and then it repeats and repeats in a cyclical process that never ends. A spiraling process that never ends. The objective psyche. One of Jung's most fundamental lessons during his inner journey in the Red Book was given by the prophet Elijah and later by Philemon on the objective aspects of the deeper layers of the unconscious. When meeting the divine figures of Elijah and Salome, Jung was perplexed by the proximity between a saintly prophet from the Old Testament and a sinful Salome, responsible for the decapitation of John the Baptist. Seeking a rational explanation for this mystery, he initially interprets Elijah as representing the more differentiated psychological function of thought, and Salome, the beautiful blind girl, as representing the less differentiated function of feeling. He then seeks another way to interact with these figures, using the method he would later call amplification. The image of a wise old man with a young girl became a typical way of personifying the psychic energy of the collective unconscious, in the same way that this is done through fairy tales in which the old man princess, the old man and princess coupling is often observed. Gnostic legend has its figure of Simon Magus as the young and the young Helena. And in alchemy, there is an example of the adept working together with his Soror Mystica. Surprisingly, Elijah reacts to Jung's rational interpretations. Jung, what my eyes see is exactly what I cannot grasp. You, Elijah, who are a prophet, the mouth of God, and she, Salome, a bloodthirsty horror. You are a symbol of the most extreme contradiction. Elijah. We are real and not symbols. Hmm. Page 246. And later, Elijah, you may call us symbols for the same reason you also call your fellow men symbols, if you wish to. You invalidate nothing and solve nothing by calling us symbols. Yeah, you plunge me into terrible confusion. What do you wish? To, do you wish to be real? Elijah, we certainly, we are certainly what you call real. Here we are, and you have to accept us. The choice is yours. I wonder if they were in that sense, like he was actually being visited by their spirits and he wasn't accepting it or not realizing it. That's an interesting interpretation of that. Um, well, at least to me anyway. The passage demonstrates what Jung would establish in his work as the reality of the soul. 
the psychological events are real and they have the same status as any objective reality. Starting to formulate this, Jung then proposes a layer of the psyche that he names the objective psyche, which is autonomous and conscious in nature and presents in the unconscious. At the theoretical elaboration, oh, an image that came to mind just now was this idea of yin-yang. Think if you, if you were to, for sake of argument, associate the yin and yang as conscious and unconscious, which isn't typically how it's been presented. Typically it's about chaos and order. But suppose, I mean, you could link the order with conscious and unconscious with disorder. But anyway, if you were to treat the conscious as the white bit and the dark bit as the unconscious, now each bit, the light bit, the white bit has a black dot in it and the black bit has a white dot in it. So, I mean, this, the objective psyche, let's say, that Jung's mentions there, I would say is that light in the darkness, if it's, um, autonomous and conscious in nature and presents in the unconscious. Perhaps, I don't know, that just came to mind. So, the complex, the, the theoretical elaboration of these experiences belonging to the psyche, the reality of the psyche is only achieved much later in Jung's later work. The complex concept of the objective psyche or the reality of the soul paves the way for a new epistemology forming the mental phenomena. According to Jung, psychic content is real as long as it, as it exists. The operate, it operates and is effective through the experience of the psyche. In addition, psychic con, psychological content has an objective existence and is not mere and is not a mere epiphenomenon of the conscious psyche. This epi, epistemological turnaround is echoed in the modern physics, in modern physics where there is a rigid discrimination between subject and object that falls down. Um, Jung reflects on these findings of a conscious within the unconscious in his later work, discussing the autonomous conscious content of the unconscious that operates independently of free will. Does it? So, anyway, with this proposition, the traditional structure of the psyche polarized between the layers of the conscious and the unconscious is called into question. This is because the term unconscious contains the remnants, remnants of its historical discovery, according to which it is seen as the absence of conscious. Dualistic thinking though, isn't it? Because non-duality unifies those two things, does it not? <clears throat> That's what integrating the shadow is, right? Moving towards totality. Unity. The conscious and un the unconscious unconscious opposition is one of the great polarizations that dominate our culture and help to organize the modern paradigm. Since humanity created its first polarization between man and nature, civilization has been organized according to the two polarities, civilized and tribal, conqueror and conquered, northern and southern hemispheres, male and female, spiritual and the material, the soul and body, among others. These polarizations are always hierarchical and rigid, which is a serious matter in, indeed, as men are seen as superior to women, the soul to the body, the spirit 
spiritual to the material, the, the civilized to the tribal and so on. Now, you might see the connections here to the law of one and the awakening into unity and Gnostic themes. Gnostic themes are something that Jung was aware of. And so, I mean, it lines up. Within the polar structure of conscious and unconscious, there will always be some kind of hierarchy by definition. With the unconscious being seen as lacking, the absence of the consciousness be placing it from the start as inferior to the conscious. If we follow the history of the unconscious, we see that psychopathology, symptoms, and lack of social acceptance were always the route to its discovery. For this reason, the unconscious consistently manifests itself via the psychopathologies. However, this perception of the unconscious as inferior does not do it justice, as it is fundamental, a fundamental creative force in the human experience. The unconscious is always at work in the arts, the sciences, and in any creative pursuit. When Jung defends the unconscious as a value in itself through his experiences described in Liber Novus, showing that he, it has its own autonomy, creativity, and meaning, the spirit of the depths personified as Philemon, it is no longer unconscious and the term becomes inadequate. This is why Jung proposed the term objective psychic, to describe a layer of the psyche universal to all of humanity with its own objectivity and autonomy and no longer an epiphenomenon derived from the conscious inferior to the lucid and irrational conscious now keep in mind that the self is something conceptualized as a unifying as something that unifying and totality and the whole of the psyche in a sense is fundamentally linked to the self and derives from it and is a creation of it. Uh, I'm mixing in some of my own views here. But yeah, and um, this idea seems one of me to link to the objective psyche and soul. Right. A new psychotherapy. It is said that psychoanalysis and depth psychology, including all of the schools of psychotherapy that take the unconscious into consideration, are undergoing a crisis. In reality, it seems as though the crisis lies within the traditional model of psychoanalysis, which involves various concept consultations per week and takes large periods of time. We need to be open to new and more agile approaches that use a wide, the wide range of expressive techniques proposed by Jung as a result of his own experience with Levonovus. At this point, I would add that techniques such as EMDR or EFT, which is emotional freedom technique, or the other one is eye movement. Um, uh, Uh, I can't remember what it means. But anyway, they are definitely worth going into. There's other techniques, I'm sure, that are other things, uh, forms of therapy that definitely can aid uh, to a greater degree um, or quicker. 
than the traditional method of psychotherapy. And I would also add that the idea of there being a crisis in psychotherapy, when in fact it's actually, the idea that there being a crisis in the Jungian approach and depth psychology, when in fact there's a the approach, the problem is actually the other aspect of it, not accepting the, the evidence and the subjective aspects and the unconscious aspects of the mind. It reminds me very much of how the mystical implications and the non-realist implications of, of quantum physics are sidelined consistently despite the strength of the Copenhagen interpretation, which itself consistently is treated as just a just a set of rules to use, not a description of reality like regular theory would be. But no real reason other than the scientific community isn't willing to accept the conclusions. And so they're just being less scientific, just like the mainstream psychological uh, discipline. And honestly, at this point, the, the gatekeeping and the, the manipulation of the cabal of the scientific, scientific communities as a whole has got to the point where the scientific community isn't properly being scientific. The proper scientists are the so-called cranks who are doing pseudoscience by um, you know, actually following the scientific method properly, as opposed to unscientifically ignoring evidence, what, you know, pseudoscience is. So basically, so-called pseudoscience isn't, right? It's the mainstream science that's pseudoscience. It's, it's actually like that. Um, and if you know you're not a proper scientist, the best way to make sure people don't pay attention to that is by accusing those who are of not being it. You see, it's all about consensus these days. Anyway, I'm, I'm going on going with tangent. Well, consensus, consensus among a single paradigm while not really unifying the whole thing. Anyway, in, un, in any psychotherapeutical journey, using the unconscious as reference and within the parameters of any school of thought, we follow two processes in parallel. On one hand, it is important that we have some kind of theoretical and operational reference so that this, this process does not take place in the dark and purely through intuition. On the other hand, the theoretical process will always involve a, di a direct emotional encounter between two people. Jung always affirmed that the personality of the therapist is essential to ensure a cure. He once cited an old alchemical dictum, art requires the whole man. The Red Book is a powerful affirmation that the personal experience is fundamental in the process of, a, of psychological cure. The book also relates to the therapeutic process of Jung himself. This process has nothing to do with the conventional cure for symptoms and is much more like a total transformation of the personality. Symbolic experiences are the central process in cure and in transformation the results of which are unpredictable and the duration undetermined. It is the process that is out of control of the conscious and which cannot be planned. It is, or at least it might be a, on a more super conscious level, perhaps. 
it is constructed in each moment, in the moment, presence, huh? Presence is where the higher consciousness is. In the moment, the wanderer taking his personal path and transformations taking place with each step. Lima Novus contains the basis of a form of Jungian therapy based on the technique of active imagination. As a result of his encounters with inner characters, Jung developed a new and highly creative way of working through the unconscious. He summarized this process for the first time in his work, The Transcendent Function, written at the same time as Lieber Novus. The foundations for the new attitude towards analysis are elaborated in Lieber Novus, and nonverbal expressive techniques are an important part of this process. Based on his experience, the technique of working with images, paintings, drawings, and sculpture is highly valued by Jung himself and by his collaborators. Working with dreams and images is fixed in at the center of the Jungian model. The CG Jung Institute Zurich has put together a build archive, image archive, for the systemic, systematic research of archetypal images in paintings and artistic production in general. Subsequent generations of Jungian analysts have sought to integrate the model of dream interpretation and expressive techniques developed by Jung in Libanovus using a systemic approach involving a Jungian therapeutical setting and the interpretation of transference. An archetypal transference model has been developed as well as studies on the primary relationship between mothers and their babies as an influence on this psychopathology. I consider the notion of archetypal transference to be fundamental to the therapeutical process. Transference is always present and must be recognized by any therapist. However, it contains archetypal images and has a purpose and meaning with, within the, the analytical process. Many authors have sought to integrate Jung's theory with that of other psychoanalytic back authors. Within this hybrid model, the use of active imagination and the personification of archetypal figures are both still important in the understanding of the individuation process and the evolution of the therapeutic process. Well, so, hmm. Finalizing the book. Regarding the results and the duration of this process, we must not forget that Jung toiled over the Red Book for 16 years. He left it incomplete in the middle of a sentence when he tried to go back to it, when he tried to go back to it in 1959. In this year, Jung tried to complete the Red Book, but did not succeed. At the end of page 190 of his calligraphed copy, he ended with an incomplete phrase, incomplete phrase. I knew how frightfully inadequate this undertaking was, but despite much work and many distractions, I remain true to it, even if another possibility never. Jung was successful in was Jung successful in relation to his self-analysis? We can say that he was, that he did not get lost among the various symbols of the book and that this lay the foundations for his posterior theoretical work, theoretic work and his work on himself. Jung stated that he stopped working on the Red Book in 1928 when he discovered alchemy um, upon receiving a copy of the Chinese alchemic treatise, The Secret of the Golden Flower from 
the scenologist Richard Wilhelm. Wilhelm. However, there was no doubt that he already knew about alchemy through his interest in the works of Theodore Florini and his contact with Hans Silbera. I, I would say that's probably synchronicity uh, and some sort of divine orchestration uh, that led to him getting that book. And they're probably thinking about it beforehand, which ended up attracting it to the law of attraction. <clears throat> However, there was no doubt that he already knew about alchemy through his interest in the work of Theodore Falloni and his contact with Hans Silbera. A psychoanalyst in the Vienna Circle, Silbera had been researching alchemy from the first decade of the 20th century, and Jung knew of his and Fluoroni's work, both of which were interested in the psychological aspects of the subject. Silbera wrote a range of works on the occult arts from a psychoanalytic point of view. The most interesting of these was The Problems of Mysticism and Its Symbolism, 1917, where writing transformations and symbols of the libido, symbols of transformation, in 1912, Jung makes his first reference to alchemy, comparing an image of the process of cooking produced by a patient to the visions of alchemist Zosimos Panopoulos, Shamdazani, 2012, page 167. Silbera had a rather reductionist bias and explored alchemy and the occult arts, the expression used in the title of one of his books, from the psychoanalytic perspective of sublimation and the defenses against repressed content. At the time, Jung did, thorough, did not thoroughly explore the symbolic source of alchemy. The subject appears through Lieber, throughout Liber Novus, However, mainly within the theme of bringing together opposites, conjunctio, considered to be the final and most important alchemical operation. Jung discusses the profound significance of the conjunctio in alchemy in Mysterium Conjunctius, 1955. We see this, this symbolism of opposites in the images of black and white snakes and of nighttime and daylight, among others. But the most impressive alchemical symbol appears as illustration 115 in chapter 17 of Liber Secundus, Nox Quarter, the fourth night. Fourth night. Jung illustrates a figure in black wearing a hat. It is a type of closed cubicle with a black and white triangular, quadrangular floor. Jung wrote to the side of this illustration, this is the golden fabric in which the shadow of gold, God lives. Hmm. The concept of the golden fabric and its metals as being inhabited by the planetary gods is an ancient alchemical idea from the age of Alexander the Great. The gods come down from the planets and develop within metals deep inside the earth. A network is created between the planets, the metals and the gods. The psychology of ancient man was intertwined with the environment and based on a web of significant connections. They appear again in the unconscious material of contem contemporary man. Alchemy is a hylozoistic tradition in which the spiritual and the material from the Greek hyl are interwoven. In alchemy, the world is not created by a demiurge as the spiritual is not superior to the material, and the former has recovered its dignity from the great original mother. This unique cosmology may have been the main reason that Jung used alchemy as a principal reference for his work after Liber Novus.
In the fragment cited, there is a clear reference to alchemy. If Jung already knew about alchemy, his discovery of the alchemical treaties would not have been sufficient for him to abandon the writing of Liber Novus. We may suppose, however, that fewer conscious, fewer unconscious images were appearing at the time in comparison to the key years of 1914 to 1917. The stormy waters were starting to calm. The rich symbolism from this period were gradually integrated in Jung's creative process over the years that follows, followed. Shamdazani says that the assimilation of these experiences followed a nonlinear spiral process. Now, that's intriguing because as I've said a number of times, if you look at the hero's journey, if you look at, which is a circle that repeats a cycle, if you look at um, the final formation of the Quaternios in Demandler form, um, if we look at in the Red Book, if we look, if you look at ages and the the yearly, if we look at everything in a way, it's all this cyclical process. But the thing is, if there's an upward trajectory of let's say frequency for the sake of argument, you get a spiral. And if you look at and if you look at the sun with the planets moving around them, as the sun's moving to keep up an orbit becomes a spiral, right? It's all a spiral. Now, what is DNA? A spiral. And what is it? DNA, David Walker pointed out, forms spontaneously anywhere, even in nuclear reactors, and adapts with genetic forms required to survive there with no, when there's no life in there at all from the outset and no basis for it to build. It literally is created out of light. And everything is love and light. Obviously, there's more to it than that. But yeah, love and light is a great part of it. And everything is part of that. And so, in a sense, it's all various forms of light creating spirals, right? And what is a spiral? If you look at a wave, like a, okay, so people think of a wave, like they think of a, a chart and there's a 2D wave going up and down, up and down, up and down, right? Now, the truth is there are many fields that waves come together to form um, fields in physics, right? Now, if, what if they spiral? What if there's a fundamental spiraling feature of energy? Then in that sense, what it would mean is this psychological process, uh, I mean, the psyche is linked to, if the psyche is spiraling and the psyche is linked to all other psyches through panpsychism, then what we have in a form of pantheism, panpsychism, the nature of reality is all minds being connected, individually spiraling, together spiraling in a fractal way. 
Isn't that cool? Um, in subsequent work, the content of Liebenobis that emerged in confusing and meaningless symbols was gradually included in a consistent theoretical system. In his work, The Relations Between the Ego and Unconscious, 1928, Jung already mentioned a technique of differentiation between the ego and the figures of the unconscious. And in the 1917 essay, The Structure of the Unconscious, Jung talks about attempts to free individuality from the collective psyche. In Psychological Types, 1921, the encounter with Elijah and Salome undergoes a sophisticated theoretical elaboration. In fact, all of the theory that Jung developed after this book derived from these seminal experiences. The understanding of the myth and to, of totality in order to realize the personality. The criticism of empty institutional religion. The multicultural approach that is essential to modern times and the model of the archetype in order to articulate his entire theoretical vision. Now, that is a pretty good summary of, of what the text gives us. And so, especially the black books and um, understanding, well, it says myth of totality. But if we understand totality, right? The self, the soul, the psyche, it's all one unity. We understand the totality of it. And that unity with oneself and also the external being a reflection of that. Like, I don't know if that's explicitly what Jung was saying. I don't think it was, but through that totalizing that unity, we realize the personality and empty institutional religion doesn't enable us to connect with the divine. It kind of gets in the way with the egoic bullshit that egos have come up with. Routines, rules, rituals. Rituals, I mean, like it's, it becomes more about the, the rituals and the sort of mental programming. Like the Bible says this, therefore this is how it is, right? Instead of actually a, a free cognition regarding the matter of spirit. Um, and even those who are secular are not are often, a lot of people were not freely engaging in cognition about the nature of their reality or what they believe, but rather following a doctrine of some kind, a larger logical doctrine or doctrines of how to act conforming, afraid, ashamed, all these pent-up negative emotions uh, that haven't been dealt with in the shadow. And Jung was right to criticize empty institutional religion. Now, multicultural approach. Now, this is interesting because obviously there is an opposition to multiculturalism and there are, the way it's been pushed or the form in which it's been presented and pushed has created a division that is unnecessary because there's opposition. It's like toxic multiculturalism and toxic opposition to multiculturalism. What we need is 
a multicultural approach that's unifying rather than creating a false divide. Because we can integrate wisdom from various different cultures into a and, it, and religions and spiritualities into a unified understanding of self and humanity and a unified humanity in general. We can do this. And by learning of the wisdom that each culture has to offer, I mean, it, it's a bit like a unified, let's say, second one, political perspective, which transcends all the divides and polarities of it and is unified and is not limited by the polarities that typically are presented within it. And multiculturalism would do the same thing. Um, and no, wait, no, not multiculturalism, the multicultural approach. I think that's a different thing. Anyway, the model of the archetype in order to articulate his entire vision. So archetypes, maybe the significance of archetypes does need to be stood and the significance of archetypes on a collective level. That may help us understand and unravel the collective integration of the shadow and individuation process. It's interesting how collectivizing the individuation process truly is on a collective level, which makes it ironic that it's called individuation, but that's looking at it from a Jungian perspective. Um, the archetypes can help guide us, the symbols can help guide us to grounding and recentering the psyche. If you remember from the mandala section of this text, where it's talking about the role of mandalas, they it's the idea of the self as the center. Um, the mandalas spontaneously come up. Um, where is this? So the idea of a the psychological mandala is a search for a central point, representing a new center for the personality that is differentiated from the ego, and the apparent reference for mental processes. The soul, the source, the um, self. And if everyone do this and then unify together and then connect nature, Gaia, um, and then identify, hmm, understand each other as a whole, um, a unity, then there's a unity, a sense of unity, a new center, a Essentially, like with mandalas, um, archetypes help guide us to unifying our psyche, but on a collective level, they can help us unify as a whole, help us understand our totality and our position in the universe and everything. Um, and so I, I feel like archetypal images and how Jungian, Jungian psychology has explored it, I, I feel like that's very valuable to the overall awakening process. And yeah, I, I really, I really feel like 
the Red Book and Jungian psychology, it's there were there's a lot of ways in which it can be part of the picture for helping people awaken. And it it's also it's got links to Gnosticism, which itself has links to the actual teachings of Christ and the the law of one, right? And true nature of reality. And he, he got part of the picture. He definitely got part of the picture. And this helps. And he did it as much as he could in a scientific manner. And I find that that is extremely valuable, right? Um, this is really will help us with this ongoing awakening a new age process now i'll read this bit again just to really cement it in fact all the theory that jung developed after this book derived from these seminal experiences the understanding of the myth of totality in order to realize the personality the criticism of empty institutional religion the multicultural approach that is essential to modern times and the model of the archetype in order to articulate his entire theoretical vision. But did the continuous development of the Red Book stop at any point? Shamdazani, 2009, considers the construction of the Bollingen Tower with its mysterious inscriptions and continuation of the book, or other words of a true Liber Quartus. The work on this unique and revolutionary book was never truly abandoned. It was continued in various ways and emerged in the author's theoretical works until the end of his life. So, that is the end of the book. And I have to say, I really enjoyed it. It really delved into the themes. I don't think if I just read the book outright, the red book, maybe I would have missed things. And I did all the key themes, but which explained pretty well. And um, and I've got a lot to explore, a lot of parallels to New Age spirituality to make. A lot of the themes are connected. I I, I really enjoyed it. It allowed me to do my intuitive reading thing where ideas come to me and I link things together. It allowed me to do that fairly well, which I enjoyed. Uh, and I, hopefully it has good content. I mean, I think it's good content. Uh, I know at least some people enjoy it. Um, so yes, I hope you enjoyed. Uh, I hope you're having a good time in life and stuff. <laughs> um, and if not, it's uh, probably all part of the process. You'll be all right. So um, bye for now. <laughs>